This is the Do Better Podcast with Dr. Megan Miller and Joe Smith, launching you into the future of behavior analysis. So today we have another episode of Megan's Musings. Um, someday we will do other episode formats, but I just have a lot of things I want to talk about apparently. So uh, if you all <laughs> haven't figured it out yet, I have a lot to say about extinction. So we are going to break down what is happening during an extinction burst from a learned behavior perspective. Joe, is this something you've thought about before? Uh, Yeah, so I'm a special education teacher here in Virginia Beach, um, and I teach second and third grade students in a self-contained setting. In my classroom, there are a a lot of my students engage in attention-seeking behavior. Um, Of course, when we implement a procedure to withhold attention, we see a definitely like a huge increase in frequency and intensity in interfering behaviors. Uh, throughout the school day. Okay. Yep. And I would expect, especially in a classroom, that you would have a lot of difficulty with implementing extinction procedures because there's a lot of different sources of reinforcement there. Yeah. Yes. And it's very difficult to even isolate any anything to uh, in the classroom. Yeah. So I know there's a lot of special education teachers out there that are going through the same challenges that I am. So it's definitely something that I've been thinking about quite frequently the past uh, two years. Well, hopefully we'll get some good discussion going with it today. So actually that kind of brings us to how did we get to this topic? Why are we talking yet again about challenging behavior and extinction? We did an episode right before this on practical functional assessment. So at Dr. Hanley's training in Virginia in March of 2018, there was discussion around reinforcing at the first sign of challenging behavior occurring. Before I get into my points on that, Joe, I actually just thought of a new question. When you were in graduate school, was that something that you all learned about or discussed in graduate class, uh, reinforcing at the first sign of a challenging behavior with precursors? It's been like two years now, but I know we have talked about uh, different procedures that we can implement, and one of them is extension. Uh, But what we talked about was, you know, the procedure, what it looks like, and uh, challenges that we may face using extension procedures. Okay. Um, and one of them is you will you you might see an increase in challenging behavior and intensity um, using that type of procedure. Yeah. You know? So did but did you all uh, read any articles or talk about anything relating to reinforcing the challenging behavior and using matching law to counteract that reinforcement so that they would still choose the replacement behavior? To be honest, I don't think so. Think so. I don't recall. I okay. Mean. I would hope if, if you did, you would recall it. <laughs> Something that we generally uh, would remember. So that's one of the things that um, it was interesting for me to watch during the training with Dr. Hanley. How many people, when you kind of looked around the room when he was talking about it, their minds were just blown. Like, wait a minute, we can reinforce precursors. We can reinforce challenging behavior, that's okay. So um, I, that's why I wanted to ask you because I doubted that that was something that uh, you had talked about, but I just, you know, I didn't want to just yeah. assume. Um, I was fortunate at FSU that was 
something that we did go over in our coursework and we read, I don't remember off the top of my head now, but we did read articles about that. And especially looking at if you had severe challenging behavior, the importance of going ahead and reinforcing precursors because it would be dangerous to have the challenge, the severe challenging behavior happening while you try to work through um, a behavior intervention plan. So unfortunately I don't think it's discussed as much as it should be. So anyway, but when, for whatever reason, when he was talking about it, it kind of clicked some new thoughts for me on the whole topic. It's been something, like I mentioned, back in graduate school, even in 2005 to 2007, that I've been aware of and I use with clients. But I had just new thoughts kind of busting around when Dr. Hanley was talking about it. So it just kind of broadly speaking, some of the things he said during the training made me think even more about extinction and why I've been so focused over the years on using shaping and addressing skill deficits before implementing extinction. So some of his points that kind of hit home for me, one, he said, when a child is willing to flip a table, run across the room and put their head in the glass, we do not need motivation. We can't override that with arbitrary reinforcers. If problem behavior is occurring with regularity, it is being reinforced and the reinforcers can be tough to see. And I thought that was just a really great point, you know, especially when really intensive, challenging behavior is happening. If someone is choosing to go through all that effort and cause (laughs) that kind of effect on their own body and the environment, there's clearly something bigger (laughs) going on than just identifying like, oh, we need to, you know, make sure they don't access the iPad or something like that. Yeah, uh, I definitely see this in my classroom with just my own students, just um, how how easily they have no problem with flipping a table or a desk, how they will bang their head against a filing cabinet or throw something across the room without without I mean, like it like it just happens to for them. Yeah, Um, and it's. It's in my, the more, the staff members that come into my classroom that are a little bit less experienced, they're like, by the end of their day, by the end of their first day, they're like, wow. And I was like, yes, this is, uh, when you're working with these kids, it's a lot different from what you think of in a typically developing general education classroom. Yep. Um, that's exactly true. And uh, hopefully we'll get into a little bit more discussion about what we can do instead when looking at, especially in a classroom. One of the other points that he made was about the three-term contingency. So the notes I had about that, he said, this is a one thing at a time model relying on isolated reinforcement contingencies. And, you know, that's very powerful. It's helped us understand for 30 years, how very simple interactions can lead to extraordinary behavior. But, and these are like mostly Dr. Hanley's words, I kind of typed up exactly what he was saying. (laughs) Um, It will not get kids to the promised land. It's weak, it's insufficient. Reinforcement contingencies is not one thing. It's messier. If you do one thing at a time, you're stripping your programs of power. What maintains extraordinary behavior is all of the things. There's a lot of variables that are interacting together. So you're getting out of the things they don't want to do to get the things they want to do and to do the things they want to do, how they want to do it. So it's this, you know, interconnected situation that's happening. Um, And I was already thinking about challenging behavior assessment and analysis not happening in a vacuum, but this really got me thinking about what effects we have, what are we, like, effects are we having on behavioral repertoires, not just during analysis, but also during intervention. So when all of these things are interacting with one another, when the learner is doing things to get out of things, to get to the things they want (laughs) to do and to do things how they want to do them, um, what is like the bigger picture there? And it really had my wheels turning, thinking about challenging behavior from a learned behavior perspective. So that's what we're going to talk about in more detail today. But before I move into some of the examples I came up with. I wanted to see if you had any additional comments for just the, why are we talking about this? Yeah. I mean, I saw that same training that Dr. Hanley uh, presented here in Virginia beach. um, And I thought it was amazing too. Um, It was two days intensive training, but it was the, some, it was like one of the best trainings I've ever been to. 
Um, and he, his training really made me rethink uh, my practices in the classroom and uh, how I could do better in the classroom. Hashtag do better, by the way. <laughs> um, I knew that ed- extinction in the education setting is difficult to implement due to all the different variables in the classroom setting. I also know there is a better way to work with students who present these challenging behaviors. So um, I hope our, our learners today will take something back from what uh, we present today. Perfect. Good. And yes, it was. Well, we were fortunate because we had him come and do some stuff with us the day before his presentation. And then the people that paid and came to the training had him for a day as well. But I would say there's never, you never can get enough time with Dr. (laughs) Hanley. You uh, learn tons every time. I had um, a family go and see him present at a conference in Vancouver. And he basically did the same presentation three days in a row, but she signed up for all the days because she didn't know that it was the same presentation. And she, she went every day and she still, you know, learned something new each time, even though it was like the same (laughs) presentation. And I had that happen one year. He was at all the conferences that I was going to. And each time he would see me, he was like, why are you here again? <laughs> it's like, eh, well, you know, I learn something new every time. So, all right. Okay. So what I wanted to uh, start with is some examples, just think, kind of thinking about challenging behavior and thinking about what's being learned during challenging behavior. So first I'm going to do just like a smooth example. Like hopefully this is a, a situation that a lot of people encounter when they're working on addressing challenging behavior. So let's take a child who is choosing to throw items when they're denied access to a preferred item. So, you know, they want a candy bar and they're denied access. So they just start throwing things in the room. So the typical response to this would be to withhold access to the item, Mm -hmm. to refrain from engaging with the learner. Once the learner calms down, likely having them fix the environment. So pick up whatever they threw Mm -hmm. And then moving forward with whatever was scheduled to happen next. So they don't get the item when when they throw stuff. Ultimately, if we never give the child the item that was denied, we are told that the child will learn that engaging in throwing behavior doesn't result in access to preferred items, right? That's a pretty standard example (laughs) that people would give for uh, behavior maintained by access to tangibles. But let's play this out a little bit. Let's say the child throws a few things, doesn't get access, and moves on, and the challenging behavior stops occurring in response to denied access. Logically speaking, we would probably say that this child has all of the skills necessary to tolerate being denied access to something, to choose to respond in a calmer way when denied access, and to focus their attention on something else when denied access, because all it took was following through with denying access to see the challenging behavior decrease. This is not what happens in many of the cases that we're serving. So I'm just giving like a a cut and dry, okay, you know, textbook example. Oh, you don't give the child the candy bar and they immediately stop throwing items and like move on to something else. There's a, a, not just the skill of, well, not really the skill, but there's not just the fact that you didn't give them the candy bar but there are skills involved that the child would need to have in order for that to work. And I mentioned those already. They would need to be able to calm themselves down once they've been upset about something and focus their attention on something else and stop focusing on the fact that they don't have the candy bar. And I think a lot of the times people take that for granted. There is just this assumption that if we remove the thing that's supposed to be reinforcing the challenging behavior, the challenging behavior will just go away without taking into account what skills are necessary for the learner to move on from that uh, episode and that experience that they're having. Um, how often has this happened for you, Joe, with, with the like textbook example where it's just like, oh, they want this, we're not giving it to them, and then the challenging behavior just goes away? Well, I've been teaching for 11 years now, and it has happened more times than I can count on probably like five sets of my hands, you know, uh, it, it is something that, um, and it, it, that happens in the education setting where they're trained to, you know, if a student wants something, but they're not, not asking, uh, responding, um, 
like they're sh- they they need to or they're throwing or engaging in challenging behavior we're told to withhold attention and not give them um that access to that item the entire day you know um i had a student that brought in barbie dolls and she she wanted into the classroom or policy was like no you do not we're not bringing anything else into the classroom from i mean because we already have our own set of toys and reinforcers in the classroom you don't bring your own and she engaged in challenging paper um throughout the whole day over the barbie dolls and you would think that she would learn and guess what that doesn't happen because the next day it's over something completely else. Um, And then the next day, maybe a week later is something completely different or it's the same item or it, I have seen it so many times played out in my, in my educational experience uh, that, you know, they are denied access to a tangible. But what I see is if I can, work with them on those deficits and those skills deficits that they are able to either tolerate or they can handle asking appropriately uh, or they're, they, they gain those skills by teaching those uh, skills that they, those communication skills that they do not have. Right. But you have to actually teach them, right? You like do. the assumption that you can just not give them the tangible and they'll eventually learn and, and stop engaging in the challenging behavior is pretty weak. It only applies to learners that already have the prerequisite skills mastered and they, you know, just happen to be engaging in challenging behavior because it truly has been reinforced that, you know, whenever they whine or whatever, they get the item maybe in a different environment. So then when they're with you at school or if they're <laughs> doing in-home services or whatever, mm-hmm. um, if that's a learner that's already been taught how to tolerate being denied access or how to focus their attention on something else when an aversive thing is happening, then they'll be fine. The challenging behavior will go down. It just really did all it took was like letting them see, hey, in this setting, that yeah. gets you nothing. But if they've only ever received whatever they want, whenever they want, and nobody's ever taught them the other skills, like how to tolerate denied access, how to tolerate aversive situations, then you can, you can withhold the item all you want, but it's very rare that they would start choosing that replacement behavior because how could they, (laughs) they've never been taught the replacement behavior. Um, And I'm going to talk about that in a little bit more detail with the extinction burst in a minute, but um, so when you say it, it's happened more times than you can count, you mean it's happened the opposite of the textbook way where you try to just withhold access, but it doesn't accomplish the the stated thing that yeah, like, the challenge correct. behavior just goes away. Yeah, yeah correct. And I like I can't even remember now because probably because I've worked with so many different children and I'm pretty quick to work on like wait and give me and tolerating no. So I don't honestly know um, what the percentage would be textbook example of like just withholding access, but I would say it's pretty rare that um, that's all it's taking is just withholding access. Okay. So now I want to talk a little bit about what happens if there, um, if this is not like the textbook example. So let's say that the child initially throws a few things and then, so you, you know, they want the candy bar. You say, Oh, we can't have the candy bar right now. They start throwing things and you, you know, keep the candy bar. You don't give it to them. And then that escalates to throwing more intensely, knocking things over, punching things, screaming, kicking, etc. And the whole episode lasts for 30 minutes. The child doesn't ever access the item that was denied. However, the response continues to occur opportunity after opportunity. And the same pattern of behavior occurs for the child. So the next time they ask for a candy bar, and it's not time for one, and you say no, that whole episode plays out for another 30 minutes. So what exactly is learned? What are they learning in this situation? Um, that I can engage in what I like to call uh, destruction of property and aggression and will make everyone chase me. 
<laughs> quite possibly. Yeah. If they're like chasing around the room to try to like block access. So it could turn into some type of fun game potentially. Yeah. Right. Um, I've had learners where that's going on and they've got like all the control happening now and like everyone's eyes on them and they've pulled everyone away. So not only, you know, was there an initial, you know, oh, I was denied access and I'm upset, but now it's like, ooh, I get a lot of attention when I act like this. This is cool. Um, but also if it's more of like, I know it's not something typically discussed necessarily in behavior analysis, but a lot of the clients that I've worked with tend to go into this kind of rage type where it doesn't even matter. Like even if you're going around the room blocking stuff, it's almost like they don't even know you're there. They've turned into Hulk and they're just hulking out like, you know, just completely physiologically aroused and just like throwing down. Um, and it doesn't stop until like they're exhausted essentially. So it may even last longer than 30 minutes and they may like mm -hmm. calm for a second. But then as soon as someone tries to interact with them again, they just start mm -hmm. going at it. Um, so when I think about this example, the main thing that I'm looking at from a learned behavior perspective is they're getting more and more practice opportunities to engage in more intense, challenging behavior. So not only are they not learning the replacement behavior, and they're not just magically demonstrating that simply because you've withheld access to the candy bar, but that challenging behavior went from just throwing something to this really intensive episode of throwing, knocking things over, punching, screaming, kicking, and it's very, very long in duration. And every single opportunity that's happening, they're getting a bigger, deeper history of engaging in those intensive behaviors when denied access to something. That is very concerning to me. And people, especially if they put into place behavior intervention plans that include an extinction component before providing support and proper training on the skill deficits, they're basically setting learners up for repeated opportunities <laughs> to learn to engage in more intensive, challenging behavior. That's not, that's probably not what we're trying to do here. And I think a lot of the times people don't look at that. They don't think about that. It's just like, oh man, here we go. Another 30 minute tantrum. And there's not like any sort of processing of what, what is happening in this learner's history right now. Oh, that's yet another day where they're engaging in a 30 minute tantrum. And then it probably is increasing the probability that the next time this happens, they're going to go to that again. Even if they never successfully get the candy bar, this is what the chain is being developed in the history that, that they're experiencing. In addition to that, the challenging behavior in and of itself is likely reinforcing. So even if they never get the candy bar, just being able to like hulk out about it and like theologically yeah. just like release all of that is probably reinforcing in and of itself. So it wouldn't necessarily matter what anyone else in the environment is doing if they're getting this like really long opportunity to just throw down and show you, all right, you won't give me that candy bar. I'll show you, <laughs> you know, or, like, this is what'll happen. <laughs> or it could get into a much more dangerous situation where uh, a staff member or uh, their guardians will have to implement a restraint technique, which in itself is not where we want to go either. Right. Uh, we don't want to use restraint or seclusion techniques with our learners at all. Exactly. We would rather have them have uh, access positive reinforcement. Yep. Yes. And I didn't even like include stuff about restraint in here because that's not something I have a whole lot of experience with. So I love that you're chiming in with those thoughts too, because that's really important to think about. Um, and then of course there's a whole separate podcast <laughs> we will hopefully do on that at some point. Um, and I know, you know, Dr. Meryl Winston has done a few with, uh, some of the other podcasts that are out there, like behavioral observations and controversial exchange. So hopefully we'll get to discuss that more in a future episode. All right. I agree. It's a huge, uh, it, it's a whole nother, uh, topic on to discuss about itself. Yes, definitely. <laughs> so, um, so I just wanted to give, and I'm just basically this whole episode is just me giving examples of things. So from my own life with Taylor, my son, he's three and a half. Um, this just having my own child really kind of brought up some ideas around this as well. 
So thoughts on this became more apparent for me as I could see the difference in my own toddlers responding between myself and my husband. So um, my husband would make a great traditional behavior analyst who just ignores and lets extinction run its course and hopes for the skills to develop on their own. As Taylor has developed communication skills and coping skills, I have committed to coaching him through situations and only walking away if he continued to escalate. This often results in him staying relatively calm and using language and other replacement skills to work through aversive situations with me. However, my husband typically stays silent and I watch as Taylor escalates rapidly, most likely because of the skill deficits he would have at that age in order to communicate and cope with the situation. We have had relatively few typical toddler tantrums. Now, this is just an N of one, so it could be that I'm completely wrong. But from a behavioral perspective, it makes sense that if he is lacking certain skills and I help coach him through those skills during relatively calm times, he would more quickly acquire the skills needed to tolerate adversity when he's experiencing adversity in the moment, as opposed to if I did what I had been traditionally trained to do, which is as soon as any sign of challenging behavior happens, you know, shut yourself down, turn into a statue and just wait for it, let it ride out. Um, So at least in my experience, I'm watching him, he looks like with me um, and, you know, with my husband and other people, he's developed a, a really good ability to kind of um, talk about things and, and stay calm and use strategies. But if we had, hadn't done that, we may be experiencing longer toddler tantrums and more <laughs> frequent toddler tantrums if we were just ignoring him and, and hoping that he would like figure those skills out on his own. So I know, uh, Joe, you don't have um, a toddler running around yet. No, and, I, <laughs> no, I, sure. eventually I would love a little toddler running around, <laughs> but, uh, you know, some, someday we'll have, we'll have one running around or two, but, yep. uh, but I do have seven amazing learners right now that I'm, you know, I'm truly blessed to have in my classroom. Um, and then I also have, uh, other learners, uh, from my clients I work with that I absolutely love to work with. Um, but I have had this, you know, same example. I have had uh, me, uh, my staff members and I, and we're on different pages too. Um, I got once I started learning about ABA. I really, I made a decision to instead of withholding that attention, to really work with the stu- students on de-escalation and helping them coach through it. Um, so I have a brand new staff member in my classroom this year. She was used to just um, withholding attention and uh, just uh, just waiting for the students to pose, I mean, uh, engage in a challenging behavior that was an imminent risk to harm and others before engaging in her restraint. And I took it her under my wing and I taught her like what, and I trained her like what different techniques I want her to use with my, with our learners. And one of them is if they're, if you see one of them engaging in, um, if they're escalating in uh, challenging behavior to stop it before it gets too bad. I want right. you to go over and coach them through what's going on and ask them like, how can I help you? What's going on? Um, and developing those skills. And, okay. and we've been tracking data and the, uh, throughout the uh, school day. And we definitely see a decrease in those challenging behaviors when it comes to um, denied access to items in the classroom. Good. Yeah. That's good. Has she been receptive then to the training? It sounds like she's doing. Yeah, she, she's really good. Um, she's, she's an awesome staff member and, um, I'm really blessed to have someone that's really on board with us, um, to try these different techniques. But, uh, Megan, I do have a question. Um, so what do you do if you do have a staff member that you, you, you gone through this podcast, you learn more about learned behavior and how an extension burst and how do you 
um, train staff or how do you work with staff who are resistant change? <laughs> so I've been fortunate in that most of the people I work with, that's not like, it, it's not an issue. It doesn't come up as soon as we start to have the discussions about, um, you know, what's happening. Like, let's think about the flip side of this and, you know, pretty quickly it's, oh, I hadn't thought about it like that before. I don't want to be doing that. I don't want to cause that to happen. Um, I haven't been successful necessarily with my husband. So I, and I have zero input on that because it's a different, whole different ballgame, right? Yeah. Spouse. So he has his ideas of how things should be done and, and that's fine. So um, I haven't really been able to explain it to him. And I've had people tell me that they're working at places where their bosses or other BCBAs won't listen to them when they've, you know, attended one of my trainings or something like that. But I don't, you know, I suggest to them, like, we'll give them more information and that kind of thing. But it seems like some people are just more coercive type people or... Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's based, I mean, obviously it's based on their own history at some level where that's worked for them. So, you know, there's just this kind of mindset of, well, they better do it because I said, right. And then <laughs> most people though, seem to be more in the, like, I want to have a positive relationship and I want my learners to choose to learn. So sometimes, um, I don't want to say it's a lost cause, but sometimes it can be tricky. Um, I, as with anything that we're trying to do with helping staff learn, trying to figure out what like the similar values and goals would be and then, you know, connect back to that. So hopefully the the staff members would be, have a goal of, you know, wanting the learner to engage in the challenging behavior less often and then, you know, working them through and kind of stepping through like, well, this is how we can make that happen. Um, and sometimes I'll do a comparison of like, okay, well, if we reinforce right now at the precursors and we're working on, with extra supports and training on their skill deficits, it, you know, the challenging behavior will occur at low levels over time. It'll eventually go away once those new skills are learned. If we just ignore them and don't help them through and we don't reinforce, we're going to see lots of episodes of challenging behavior. And I might even draw like an example cumulative graph for them of like, the low, and this is like based on demand fading research, especially, but mm -hmm. just like the low levels of challenging behavior over time versus like cumulatively high levels of challenging behavior. And like, they both might end up at the same goal eventually, but do we want to be working with learners who have this like stable low level of challenging behavior? Or do we want this like really cumulatively high experience of challenging behavior? Like if our ultimate goal is to not have challenging behavior, wouldn't it make sense to have the <laughs> lowest levels of it possible? Um, so that's one of, you know, one of the ways I'll talk about it. Um, and then I think that with the hands-on trainings that I've been doing recently, I've been doing some experiential activities where we role play and pretend to be the teacher and the learner and having like adults role play and be like, Hey, <laughs> if you're uncomfortable force prompting or like ignoring an adult, <laughs> then you should be really uncomfortable doing that with a student, right? Yeah. Um, so we kind of do some like hands-on practice of like, this is what this actually is. Like step away from your session, step away from your classroom and just pretend like, I, like I'll pretend, you know, old school um, training of like what I learned when I was in behavior analysis and I have them do it. And then reflect upon, you know, like, well, what it like physiologically, how did that feel? <laughs> what, you know, and, and like have the learners and the teachers reflect on it. And that seems to help a lot too. really, you see a lot of like light bulbs going off of like, that was really uncomfortable. And I don't want to do that with my learners. I don't want them feeling that way. It's not my job to like overpower them. So I don't know if either of those would be helpful, but those are the two things that I typically do. No, I like that. That's, that's great examples and um, suggestions. Like you're definitely using some act components in there too. Potentially. I don't really yeah. know enough about acts to know if I have or not, <laughs> but okay. I like to incorporate people who know about acts and do trainings on that, but it's not something I've had a whole lot of time to learn about myself. So. I'm still learning too. So, I mean, I definitely could pull out full act components but i mean i know i don't have the vocabulary as like a strong vocabulary like um um 
some of the people I have been uh, training with. So, but I know there are definitely some act components that you suggested in there. Yeah. Well, that's good. <laughs> Any of our <laughs> listeners that would like to, you know, tact what those are and leave some comments, feel free to do so. Okay. So using Taylor still as an example, um, another thing that's been fascinating to me to watch with like challenging behavior and what's being learned or not learned is how he seems to lose skills during stressful times. So when he's hungry, if he hasn't slept well enough, if he's experiencing some other type of new stressor, it could be a choice. Like, I don't know, I'm not inside his body, but he, he seems to legitimately lose the ability to communicate. So this has caused me to reflect upon my own behavior when I'm stressed and how much more difficult it is for me to do simple things or be as efficient as I typically am. And then of course I started to wonder how often our clients are in that heightened physical state and what that does to their skill set. This is obviously all very theoretical at this point, but something we should all be taking into account when we are looking at challenging behavior, when people are choosing to engage in extraordinary intensive challenging behavior, what is happening for them? Is it conditioned? Is it a skill deficit? Is it more of a respondent reaction? Is the challenging behavior in and of itself reinforcing? When I think about the times that I choose to engage in challenging behaviors, like screaming, stomping, throwing something, <laughs> even like as an adult, it still happens sometimes, you know, it's still, still get pushed to that point. Um, it usually has no connection with that behavior contacting some type of reinforcement afterwards. It's not like I'm doing those things and like, you know, as soon as I'm done, someone's like, oh, here, whatever, you know, set you off in the first place, let me fix that for you. But it's usually more of a combination of this just feels good. It physically feels good to be <laughs> doing all of these things right now. And I'm under some sort of extra stress at the time. Like I might have a lot of deadlines for work. There might be insurance issues going on. There might be like a tricky client situation or staff situation, or I just, I've got lots of programs to write and I'm working a long hours, I'm traveling a lot, but, um, but why would that be any different for our clients then? Mm -hmm. So I'm not saying this is always the case, but we should likely stop placing so much emphasis on just the function and really be looking at the, this like broader, um, picture of like all of the different things that are going on. And especially the fact that like, I don't have a diagnosis of autism. I don't, have a diagnosis of any other anything. And I don't know what the lived experience is for the people that I'm working with, for the families or the children that I'm serving. So it's quite possible. I, I have a few friends that are adults on the spectrum and they've told me about how overwhelming and overstimulating the environment is to them at all times. So if I think about how I feel when I'm just extra stressed, like occasionally, yeah. and I lose skills, could you imagine like if you're just constantly being bombarded and stressed, how difficult it can be to demonstrate whatever skills you might have? Um, so I think that that's something like a lot of times I'll run into people who are like, well, the child can the child can stay calm or the child knows how to ask for a break or the child knows how to like calmly ask for such and such, but in like certain moments they're not doing it. And so people are holding these like really high expectations for the replacement behavior. And it's like, are you taking into account like physiologically <laughs> what yeah. they're going through and the context of what's happening? Or are you just looking at like, you know, in general neutral settings, these are the skills that they have. Cause it's completely different to demonstrate skills in like a neutral calm situation versus like a highly stressful adverse situation. Yeah. I mean, and especially like, uh, for our learners that, you know, they come to us first thing in the morning or they're, um, or late at night, you know, they've been, they're either maybe, maybe they are extremely hungry they didn't eat enough. Um, maybe they did not get enough sleep. They didn't, their sleep quality is low. Um, or maybe they are just pushed to a limit with during school because they are just, they have, they're, they are bombarded with um, standards of learning. Here in Virginia, we have something called the SOLs and we're instructed to teach them all these SOLs and they have to know it in order to pass. And that can cause an extra stressor too. Yep. So, and that's just something to consider too. Yes. 
Yes. So lots to think about uh, when we're looking at addressing challenging behavior. Um, So this is kind of the final step, but it's probably going to be a little bit long. The really big thing I wanted to cover for this episode is looking at the comparison of how we treat challenging behavior versus skill acquisition, like discrete trials, sort of table time, uh, teaching. So what's most confusing to me is how differently we treat challenging behavior and skill acquisition. With skill acquisition, people don't often do enough of exploring the why like they do with challenging behavior. And we'll have, I'm sure, at least one episode on that at some point. Mm -hmm. But with challenging behavior, people don't often do enough to explore the response patterns that are occurring and how to train new response patterns. There also isn't enough analysis done on what is being learned during challenging behavior episodes. It's almost as if there is an assumption being made that each episode happens at that space and time, and then as long as the hypothesized or known reinforcer is not obtained, that challenging behavior responding will just go away. (laughs) I know I already talked in the examples above about what could be happening during extinction bursts, but I wanted to dive in here a little bit deeper on the skill acquisition part. So let's take, for example, when we teach a new skill, such as receptively identifying a familiar person, the procedures employed typically involve some type of prompt in the moment to help the learner identify the correct answer, be successful, and contact immediate reinforcement. There are also hopefully analyses being done to ensure the prerequisite skills already exist for performing the skills, such as attending to materials, scanning an array, selecting an answer, and attending to an instruction. On the flip side, when addressing challenging behavior, very rarely do I see the same attention paid to the skills that need to be developed. Instead of coaching and prompting someone in the moment where learning needs to occur and the replacement skills need to be selected by the learner, we are taught to ignore even the earliest signs of the challenging behavior. And we are told this is okay because the learner will eventually stop selecting the challenging behavior response when it doesn't contact the reinforcer. Never mind that the challenging behavior in and of itself could be reinforcing, that the learner already has a history of responding established over time that takes less response effort to select, and if the learner has nothing else in their repertoire to select, it is the only response that can occur. And the likelihood of a more pro-social response occurring during an extinction burst is slim. If the learner is already selecting challenging behavior to interact with the environment, why would we predict that during an extinction burst, they would magically start selecting safer pro-social responding? Eventually, when none of the challenging behavior is successful, maybe a pro-social response will be selected, but there is no guarantee and there is no way to predict how long or at what cost for the challenging behavior if we just sit there and ignore it and allow it to occur. So when we say, oh, well, they'll eventually select a pro-social response. What if we have that learner I was talking about earlier that escalated from just throwing things to having like a 30-minute property destruction and aggressive episode, and he does that over and over and over again for days on end? Is that productive in (laughs) any way? And does he like really need to go through that experience? So... Um, why are we not using the same strategies that hundreds of research studies proving their effectiveness to teach new responses, you know, from our skill acquisition literature on teaching a variety of skills that we teach? Why are we not using that research to teach new responses during challenging behavior contexts, just like we do during discrete trial training or natural environment training? I have a little bit more to say on this, but I wanted to pause, Joe, and see if you have any thoughts to share about this comparison between challenging behavior and skill acquisition? No, I think, um, I think, I mean, I, I question that too. It's like, why as special ed teachers are we not, or just as AB um, therapists, why aren't we also really looking at how we can help these um, learners through these challenging behaviors and coping and how we uh, teaching them how to respond um, or how to uh, be able to gain these skills. Right, exactly. So um, I know like this is, like I said, an amusing episode. It's kind of rambling. It's all these thoughts that are in my head. I do talk about a lot of this in the challenging behavior webinar, and I'll make sure to link that in the show notes if you haven't 
watched it and you want some examples if you're like, Megan, okay, you're talking about <laughs> all of this stuff, but you know, how do you actually put this into practice? But one of the other things I wanted to talk about with this whole like skill acquisition piece is looking at component composite analysis and fluency. So if I haven't convinced you yet, um, I know, Joe, you're already here with me, but anyone who's listening, if I haven't convinced you that we need to really be prioritizing reinforcing at the very earliest signs of a challenging behavior occurring and using the matching law to set up um, replacement behaviors, contacting higher levels of reinforcement, also, I have a webinar on that too with uh, behavior economics from the Do Better Movement. So I'll make sure to link that in the show notes. But if I haven't convinced you yet, what I also wanted to talk about, what we've seen with any of the research from precision teaching and fluency, frequency building, what we tend to see happen is the more often you engage in a response, and the faster you can do it, then the more likely that response is to maintain over time. So for example, if we were teaching a learner how to read, we would focus on different component skills for reading. So we might really build a fluency letter sounds, and then that can carry over to sounding out words and reading. And then we would build reading words to fluency as well, like high rates of reading the words with proper prosody and all of that kind of stuff. And then that would carry over to having reading skills maintain over time. And the, the aims are very high. So it's usually like 80 to 100 in a minute for the letter sounds or like words read. So again, quite high to, to see when you can do something that quickly, you then will, even if like for whatever reason, you don't have to read <laughs> for a few days or whatever, if somebody throws a book in front of you, you'll still sit down and read just fine. If there's distractions going on in the environment, again, you'll still be able to read just fine when that skill is developed fluently. But I think the same analysis needs to be done from the component composite side of things, looking at fluency and frequency building for challenging behavior and skill acquisition there too. I also talk about this, apparently I have a lot of webinars that touch on this topic. <laughs> um, in the precision teaching webinar I did for the Do Better Movement, so I will link that in the show notes too. But the idea is for the learners who are engaging in these challenging behaviors and they have this long history of doing so, I've already mentioned that that's, even though what they're doing may look very effortful, like if they're throwing tables and like kicking people and all that kind of stuff, it may look physically effortful. But for them, if they have a long history of doing it, it's like their go-to reaction. So it's clearly very fluent for them. So what does that mean? Well, if you try to put it on extinction and that's all you do, it's probably not going to accomplish a whole lot because they have a behavior that's going to maintain over time. They've built it to fluency themselves. <laughs> Their frequencies are <laughs> high enough. So, um, so not only do we have to compete against that when we're addressing challenging behavior and developing our behavior intervention plans, thinking about how entrenched is this challenging behavior? For how many years have they done it? How many opportunities have they had to engage in this challenging behavior? What am I up against? So let's start fresh, clean slate for a second. Let's pretend you have a brand new client. Um, they're two years old. They've never really, like parent reports, they've never really engaged in challenging behavior. You're doing your first session with them. And as a two-year-old might do, you try to, you know, have them follow an instruction and they just look at you and like throw something. In that moment, you have to decide, <laughs> are you going to push and follow through on that? Or are you going to reflect upon, oh, did I, do, I must, did I do something wrong here? Like why would, if I presented an instruction that's easy enough and if I have them motivated enough, why would they choose to throw something and, and then address it that way? Let's say you choose to just follow through. So you present the instruction again, you keep presenting it, they keep throwing stuff. So they went from a, you know, zero levels of throwing to now because you've been trained for escape extinction that you have to follow through. Now, guess what's happening? That throwing behavior is getting more and more fluent. Every single opportunity they have to engage in it, now it's becoming less effortful, easier. It's just like their go-to. All of a sudden, three days later, you have a two-year-old who's throwing you know, a hundred times a day that had never thrown before in their lives. How did we get there? Well, you caused that. 
right? Like if you, <laughs> if you continue to do the same thing over and over to follow through when they weren't listening to your instructions, thinking that you're teaching them, you have to listen to what I say. But in reality, all you're doing is helping them develop fluency with this challenging behavior. And now it's going to be even harder to get rid of it. Flip two, if you chose, okay, they threw, they've never done that before. And you just say, oh, it looks like this might be too hard. Let's take a break. And then you take a break from whatever it was. And now you've made a note of, okay, we need to work on teaching this learner how to more appropriately express they don't like something. Maybe they push it away. <laughs> Maybe they, you know, if they're two, they might not have a whole lot of language yet. So there might be like a card they give you or something. But now, you know, this is a skill deficit. When they get pushed to doing something too much, they're going to throw instead of, um, instead of engaging in some sort of pro-social response of just like walking away or pushing it away or whatever. So now they're throwing that happened that one time, then the whole rest of the session, you're doing lots of support and prompting and reminders of like how to, you know, show that you don't like something. You may even like purposely present that instruction again and immediately prompt them to push the item away or to walk away or whatever. And you, so you've kept it at a low level. There was no opportunity for that challenging behavior to develop any sort of high frequency of response that you'll now have to break. Um, I'm going to add a, a second component to this, but Joe, I'm going to pause. Thoughts? I mean, it, it, I just, it, it's just, uh, I just, I, I, I mean, it's just a, <laughs> a lot to take in. I mean, like it's, it, it it's, it definitely makes me think like of what, practices are we really i mean why are we doing the things that we do yeah uh, with that i mean even though we have all this knowledge now mm -hmm. yeah and that it was kind of weird because this is for me you know a topic i've been talking about for over 10 years with alternatives to traditional escape extinction but it's like every probably, I don't know, week, maybe hour, you know, new things kind of come up. And for whatever reason, when I saw Dr. Hanley this time around, that was the stuff that was really clicking for me because I even, I have learners where we're not using like traditional methods of extinction, but we're setting up situations where they may engage in a challenging behavior and we might've pushed them through that. Um, and it really made me reflect upon, wait, even that, like even those like small instances of that happening, what are we setting them up for? We're, we're setting up more opportunities to ingrain this type of responding. And from the, what we know about behavior <laughs> and learned behavior, this does not make sense. Like, why would we do that? Why would we set, besides the humanitarian piece of it, like just out of like straight being humans and like being kind to one another and not putting people through those experiences, even from just like a, a behavioral understanding of chains of responding and history of responding, why would we run programs where like we're excited? Like I can't even tell, I don't do this anymore, but like early in the field, even probably up to like a year ago, maybe two years ago, the conversations I would have with families about like, okay, well, we're going to run this thing. Um, you know, I know that your child doesn't like it, but the goal is to help them learn and we'll go slowly, we'll shape, and like we have these precautions in place, um, but they're, they're, we're probably going to see a little bit more challenging behavior as we initially do this. Mm -hmm. And now I'm like, well, why? <laughs> why? <laughs> why yeah. would we do that? Like if, if I'm pushing someone too hard and giving them opportunity to demonstrate that challenging behavior, all I'm doing is giving them an opportunity to learn to use challenging behavior. <laughs> yeah. It's like, why would I do that? Um, but the assumption always was, well, as long as we don't give into it, as long as we don't reinforce with like whatever the function is, then it's fine. Like it can happen. And, and you know, now it's like, no, that it, that's not okay either. And of course we're all human. We can prepare as best as possible, put all of the supports in place, break skills down, teach skills, and really set up the environment for success and still experience a challenging behavior. I mean, that happens. We're, if we had learners who never engaged in any type of challenging behavior, I'd be concerned about that too, because it's part of the human experience. As yeah. I mentioned earlier, I still have as a 37 year old adult, I'll have <laughs> my moments, right? I hope yeah. everyone else does too. Um, so it's not like we would never see it, but it shouldn't be something where like when it happens, we're just like, well, that's okay. You know, we're just going to keep doing this until it goes away. It's like, oh, 
whoops, went too far. What did I do there? Let's stop this as soon as we can. Cause I've even had that happen too, where, um, people that I'm training and supervising, like, know um, all of the stuff that we're talking about today. But when a tantrum starts to happen rather than reinforcing in the moment, so say the child, you know, wants to go in the kitchen and shut a cabinet door or something and they start screaming about it. And then the, um, the therapist is like, Oh, he screamed. We can't let him shut the door. Um, but now I know that's a program I need to work on. Um, so instead of just being like, Oh, you wanted to shut the door. Okay. Let's calmly go do that. They just write out like a 40 minute tantrum Mm -hmm. and they only let it happen that one time because then they're going to put in place a program about tolerating open cabinet doors or whatever. But even that one time, like why (laughs) you could, you could end it right there at the scream and just say, Oh, it looks like you want the door shut. Let's calmly go over there. Um, So I think that like there's a lot of missed opportunities where people think they have to write out a challenging behavior because the learner didn't start with a a pro-social response. And I've even seen where learners do start with a pro-social response, but they're told no or whatever, and then it escalates. And rather than, again, helping like coach them through it and work through it and like contact the reinforcement at like a low level of challenging behavior, it gets worked into this really long tantrum, you know, really intensive challenging behavior. And ultimately no one wins. Like the learner doesn't get (laughs) access to whatever it was that they were wanting, but everyone's gone through this like really long, intensive, challenging behavior. And it's like, but what did that accomplish? (laughs) What does it accomplish? And then also you lose lose out on 40 minutes of working with them. Mm. How did I forget to put that in the notes? (laughs) That's like one of the biggest things, right? Like you lose out on that time with that learner. There's been times at school that, you know, when I first started teaching, I would lose out on three hours of my teaching day because, uh, I did not provide access to some type of, uh, like candy that this learner wanted. Right. And, three hours long and we lose out on all that teaching time. We lose out on all those skills that they're working on. And why do we, and then we sit in IEP meetings or we sit with our parents and talk with them about how um, they are not performing on grade level or they're not performing and they have a lot of school deficit. Why are they having so many deficits? Right. Right there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And to to go with that, okay, so like, let's look at this 40 minutes, right? So that 40 minutes could have been spent learning like skill acquisition, maybe working on tolerating, like say they wanted the candy and you go ahead and give a piece, but then you do some waiting trials or some give me trials or some no trials with that candy to really practice that versus the 40 minutes of challenging behavior. There's only 24 hours in a day. Do we want our learners allocating responding to skill development or do we want our learners allocating responding to challenging behavior that interferes with their learning? Yes. Right. And, and we're, the- we're the, we're the controllers here, right? Like we're yeah. ultimately the ones like, you, yes, the goal would be that the learners are choosing for themselves, but if they're receiving intervention from us, especially for challenging behavior, they are clearly not making those choices yet. <laughs> it's our job <laughs> to help them. So if it's our job to help them, why are we setting up situations where we're wasting however many minutes or hours in a day that could be out? I mean, say 24 hours, but really there's probably only eight, eight hours in a day where learning could happen because of like all the other things that are going on and sleeping and whatnot. So we're going to waste, you know, an hour, three hours, whatever, just because they started off with like a precursor and we just didn't reinforce that from the beginning. Doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. And then it, you know, Yes, I'm in a classroom with three people, but if I'm handling the situation, the rest of my learners are suffering because I'm not teaching them. Exactly. And it, it, yeah, and then or I'm working with a client, and same thing. I'm, I mean, he's not gaining those skills. So yeah, it just blows my mind that you know we're at this age and age day day of age with all this research and we're still implementing procedures that get us nowhere. Yep, exactly. So (laughs) for anyone who's listened to this podcast, like Joe and I talk about our experiences and things like that. There's not a ton of like research that we're referencing or anything, but there is research, especially on the matching law and reinforcing challenging behavior. So I'll try to include some of that in the show notes, but if I don't, 
check out Dr. Hanley's work. He has a lot of resources on his website, which I'll definitely link in the show notes too, or you can always email us and, and we'll try to connect you with some resources as well. So the last piece for today was, oh, sorry, go ahead, Joe. Did you have something? And you know, if there's any, uh, um, BCBAs or teachers out there that also want more information or have like, or just have questions, please contact us. You know, we would love to, you know, reach out and talk with you a little bit more on the subject. Yes. Thank you. So the, the last piece of this, looking at that component composite thing, and I do dive into this deeper, I'm pretty sure if I'm remembering correctly in that precision teaching webinar, but um, is from the skill acquisition side of the replacement behavior. So a lot of the times too, when people are addressing challenging behavior, they're like listing what their replacement is, but they're not necessarily doing what's needed to teach it. And I've even seen where people do have actual programs in place to teach the replacement but they're not building it to fluency. So again, Mm -hmm. looking at you have your learner who has like might have years of history of this challenging behavior. It's a very fluent, very effortless for them. They go to it just like that. So whatever practice and training you're doing on the replacement, A, it can't just be in the moment and hope that it happens. (laughs) B, it can't even probably just be like a few trials a day of practicing in a neutral setting. You need to be practicing that replacement and getting it as fluent. You have, you have to compete with that long history they have with the challenging behavior. So you have to make up for lost time and really be practicing that replacement. And sometimes we'll do things like I've had learners where say we want them to learn how to say no for whatever reason. And they're really good Mm -hmm. at a coex. So we might do just some practice with no, no, no. You know, just echo no over and over and over just to get the no more fluent yeah. so that in the moment when they need to say no, they have, it's a more, it's less effortful for them. Mm. So, or if there's like, if we want them to like learn how to push something away, we might just practice in like a motor imitation, like pushing items <laughs> away. Let's get fluent with that. Let's make it effortless. Um, so I think that's something too, that when we're looking at learn behavior, when we're talking about challenging behavior, we really have to focus on that replacement behavior mm-hmm. becoming just as effortless as the challenging behavior. Any other, any thoughts on that piece? I know you're agreeing a lot with me. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm it, like, yeah, I, I mean, I'm just, they're, they're just so, they're like, even through this uh, podcast, I'm just thinking about my own experiences and how I, it, it just clicks and it, it's like, yeah, yeah, I, we can, we can do this. We, there's things that we can implement, um, in classroom setting and also with our clients and, you know, we should be trying, I mean, uh, using what we, uh, learned about challenging behavior and how we can better, uh, support our clients and, uh, learners, uh, through this process. And it's just like, it it just makes sense. It's like, I I just, I just, want us to just keep moving forward in this path and help our learners grow. Yes. I love it. And we, we can just do better. And it's still, even for me, it's an area that I'm constantly reflecting on and like making sure I'm really addressing well, um, that I'm setting my learners up for success and not feeding into my own history. Um, I was, <laughs> I was talking at a training I did in Massachusetts about like, even with how I'm training others on this with my own son, um, I sometimes like, again, maybe it's because I'm stressed or whatever, but I become like the momster and I know all the things, you know, but I'm just like, ah, go to bed, you know, and I'm like screaming, maybe not every day or anything like that, but it just like, I, you know, I lose, lose it. Um, or like, one of the things that we kind of have some difficulties with, uh, with like being on the same page, like mm-hmm. bedtime, bedtime's not fun. So, uh, <laughs> so I try to do what I can to, um, to like, again, reinforce before it escalates. And then my husband think, Oh, you're just feeding into that. And like, that's why this is dragging out. Um, so that's a whole separate thing. And it, um, that actually brings up one last piece for this. So I don't want anybody to listen to this episode and think like, Oh, Megan's just a big softie and like thinks we should reinforce all the time and like constantly be like throwing preferred Mm. things to um, individuals for challenging behavior. There's two pieces. One, you should definitely learn about matching law and how to properly set up reinforcement schedules so that if you are reinforcing with the precursors, 
that you're competing with the replacement behaviors. And again, Dr. Hanley's website, practicalfunctionalassessment.com provides a lot of information about that as well. But we also do have decision rules. So whether it's with Taylor or like any of the learners I'm working with, we're supporting and providing coaching in the moment um, and trying to reinforce as soon as the, the challenging behavior happens so we can move on and get you know, get going with more learning, but it doesn't always work, right? Like mm -hmm. sometimes we weren't good enough with our coaching or sometimes <laughs> the automatically reinforced challenging behavior just needs to happen. It's just one of those days. So if the learner is escalating, if I'm trying to like coach them through, if they're staying stable, like say they started out with some like low key whining or whatever, and I'm like coaching them through it and we're able to talk about it. Um, whether they're vocal or not, like I can coach, I have learners that are not vocal, but will still coach through what's happening and like what they could do. Um, if they're staying at like the same level and we're working through it and they start coming down, we'll keep working through it. But if they start to escalate, then we'll say, okay, I'll wait till you're ready. And at that point, we just have to let it, let it go. Like there's, if I've tried to reinforce it and you're choosing to just have at it, I, if I try to sit there and at that point coach you through anything, you're probably going to escalate even further. And we, we've talked about this, I think on a previous episode where like, if you're already worked up and you're upset and somebody tries to help calm you down, not likely going to happen. You're going to just keep ramping up and get more yeah. pissed off about stuff. So you do have to be able to recognize like if you, you know, something might escalate just too quickly and there's nothing, you, you just have to let it ride it out. But as mm -hmm. soon as it's, it's been written out, then you need to get back to that positive learning and not let that taint, you know, um, your ongoing learning process. And of course that you also need to be reflecting on, Ooh, how did we, how did that happen? <laughs> how did we get there? Um, and again, it might just be, well, everybody has a bad day. This was like a one-off. Everything was in place that should have been, or it could have been, Oh, I forgot, you know, to do X, Y, or Z, or this was too hard and I pushed them too far. So making sure to have that reflection too. And that's why it's important to always keep track of data. So then you can see any type of patterns that happen. And if it's occurring frequently in, um, during session, then you're like, Oh no, we need to change something. Yeah, exactly. Perfect. Well, that was all that I had um, for this topic today. I think I got through my rambling so far. I have, uh, we have a really long list of different topics we're going to cover. So I'm sure some of this will come up again in a future episode, but that was all I had for today. Did you have any other thoughts, Joe? No, I, I love the, uh, I know we have a lot of topics that we want to discuss and, you know, I would love to see if there's any um, fans out there that also have different topics they would like us to discuss about. Um, to, you know, leave comments for us so then we can look at those and make choices on what we're going to present next. If there's something that's really uh, on your brain that you want to, us to talk about or there's something that you don't know much about, we can see if we could, uh, if we have, um, if we have the time or uh, we can maybe move something up to, uh, you know, we can use for a podcast episode. So yes, I love Let's it. No, maybe we'll do a poll on the do better Facebook group soon. Oh, I love um, polls with some of the topics and see what gets the most votes. <laughs> I like that. I like that idea. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you everyone for listening to today's episode. Go forth on your quest and do better.